HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with one of those Do It at Home episodes with Belinda Chang. Do it at home, dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> but what will we be doing later that you should try to replicate with safety in mind, of course? There's glass. Yeah, there's, there's glass. <laughs> so there, there are gloves. Beware. There are glasses. All kinds of accoutrement. There is a knife. There's this, potential this is, for danger this here. This is quite a scene. My wife right now is like worried. <laughs> Checking on your insurance. Oh, no, no. I have it through her. It's pretty oh, good. Oh, good. Perfect. Yeah. I don't know if it covers champagne incidences. <laughs> See, I kind of gave it away already. But let's, let's get to champagne. Belinda, first of all, you're the best. <laughs> you know, we've known you for a long time. Yes. Um, attended many uh, epiphany parties at your house. There have been great epiphany parties. Where I've learned that one of the best things in life is taking a bump of caviar off your hand and then <laughs> a shot of champagne there. Your hand shot. I believe we created that. I've, I've seen it at other venues being replicated. But. I, yeah, I, I will not uh, disagree. Um, but one thing that's pretty much been constant whenever we're near is there are bubbles. There is always champagne, cava, prosecco, bubbles of every sort everywhere. <laughs> and I mean, you, you've gone through the ranks of many amazing restaurants from Charlie Trotter to the modern uh, winning and outstanding wine award from the James Beard Foundation in 2011. Yes. So you, you've been at the highest of high. And now you're working. I'm not going to say lowest of low. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but now you're it's working. something different for me. <laughs> it, it, it's a really interesting point of your career working for Moet uh, Hennessy yes. as their champagne educator. And champagne's something that a lot of people know and think they understand, but how far are we away from, as you know, Americans, from really actualizing 
champagne in our lives. It's a little crazy. If you look at sort of the top consumers of champagne across the world, you know, number one is the Belgians. They drink almost a bottle per person per year. So I don't know what's going on there. They're bored. I don't know. They, they love the Belgian. beer. So they grow up on bubbles. So that makes sense. And number two is the UK. You know, this was the original champagne market because they were the first to sort of embrace champagne with bubbles. So it makes sense. They drink about half bottle per person per year. And then we get to the United States statistic, which always makes me very sad. We drink about a third of a glass per person person per year of champagne. Yeah, it's it's just wrong. Um, You know, I'm doing my best to sort of spread the champagne gospel. Because, as you know, from, you know, the many times we've spent together in in, in joyous fun, uh, you know, champagne makes life better, every every moment of life better. (laughs) You know, and then growing up, were you a big drinker? Um, My parents, neither of them have that sort of a compound that you need to have in your body to break down alcohol. So definitely (laughs) my dad was the one beer and then he was really red and kind of jolly. So then I would try to refill it, especially if I got in a poor report card, you know, (laughs) in that particular year. Um, And I do remember that in our refrigerator at home, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, there was always a bottle of Lancers, this mysterious kind of crazy earth colored bottle on the top shelf, (laughs) which I learned later contains a pink bubbly sort of sweet concoction so i guess you could say that i was brought up on wine with bubbles yeah i mean what is that like mad dog is that more of a (laughs) wine cooler than it is portuguese yeah it's definitely got a little higher dosage and it's designed to be this kind of sweet fun stuff you know i mean this was the time of blue nun so everybody in the u.s was definitely drinking sweeter styles of wine if they were drinking wine at all so you know i mean it's a good thing right so lancers was a gateway drug if you will for (laughs) for a lot of us you know if you started there or started with wine coolers and, and got in to it you know it's not a bad thing and it's just a hop a skip and a jump to say crew rosé then <laughs> you know you say it's a hop skip and jump but i i start at champagne and i work backwards i, I don't know if Lucky i'm out of you, the ordinary <laughs> yeah it's such a luxurious life but i mean really when, when we talk about what goes well with food or you know like yeah. w- what is the most comforting glass put in front of somebody it's usually yeah. the bubbles rather than say a riesling which can be wildly sweet to dry i agree with you i mean i think champagne production is so highly regulated you can argue it's the most regulated of any style of booze in the entire world you know the the book of laws if you're a chef de cave in champagne is is almost endless so the nice thing for us as a consumer i mean it's definitely a, a pita it's a pain in the ass for them to make but for us as a consumer no matter where you go in the world if it says champagne on the bottle, it's going to be something great. You know, I think you can't really say that with so many other kinds of booze out there. It just it's a crapshoot, if you will. So with champagne, it's it's kind of a great guarantee that's going to be awesome. And what are those rules? We were talking about how a couple other, like Cava, yeah. are starting to follow, you know, champagne-style mm-hmm. methods. Well, the grapes are mandated, for one. You know, it's, it's sort of amazing. I do a lot of champagne tastings for folks out and about in my new position. And uh, people are often shocked to know that champagne is made from grapes you've heard of, right? So, <laughs> so that that could be Chardonnay in your glass, right? Nothing crazy. We all love Chardonnay. Uh, it, it could be Pinot Noir in your glass. It could be Pinot Meunier in your glass. Uh, and then there's some other crazy grapes that, you know, you can really impress your friends with at the cocktail party. If you can kind of rip them out there. You know, you might even freak out a, a sommelier or two, which we all love to do <laughs> now that I'm not working in restaurants any longer, but definitely in them quite a bit. Um, they use Pinot Gris. You can, by law, use Pinot Gris. We all know this. Pinot Grigio can be in Champagne. Pinot Blanc or Pinot Bianco, it's known 
known as in Italy. Uh, and then there are two other grapes that nobody's ever heard of. You can really stump your sommelier with this one. Um, one's Petit Melier, which they don't use for anything else, really, and Arbonne. So, so there's seven grapes you can use by law. 99% of everything that is grown is those three we've heard of, uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, but you can use seven total. So that's just you know the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the regulation and the laws that come into play when making champagne in Champagne. Can't right. make it anywhere else. I mean, th- this only happened in 2010, adding those other four grapes. Yeah. Why? I mean, is there something that Champagne needed to do to become hipper, become more modern? I, you know, I think so much of us, uh, so many of us in, in the wine business, we're, we're into sort of heritage and, um, you know, history. So these are other grapes that, that have been in the vineyards and grown in the vineyards for centuries. So it sort of made sense to include them. And some of the smaller producers, you know, they don't have access to amazing Chardonnay every year or amazing Pinot Noir every year or enough of that to make a great blend. So you'll definitely see bottles with titles such as Set Sepage. So, you know, the seven different grapes, the seven original grapes in Champagne. So you can find some pretty neat blends out there using these other grape varietals. So just kind of mixes it up and makes it a lot of fun. One and a half years or 15 months. 15 months. Three years. What, what do those numbers mean? So the other crazy thing about Champagne and what I really love, you know, I worked in San Francisco a bit and I love California wine, but, you know, you buy a bottle of California Cabernet, for instance, and you think to yourself, okay, I got this great bottle of California Cabernet. Should I open it now? Or will it be better later? Should I wait? Should I put it in the cellar? Should I put it in my closet? Should I live in the refrigerator? What should I do? Uh, the great thing with Champagne is by law, a bottle of non-vintage, right, and, you know, with many different years blended in, has to by law be aged in the cellars for 15 months. So it's sitting on that magic compound, the lees, also known as the dead yeast cells, which doesn't sound very sexy, but these wines have been sitting on the lees for at least 15 months. And so, you know, I love a great croissant or a great brioche or like a great pastry. I love Paillard patisserie and a pastry blue. Um, so if you put your nose in a glass of champagne and you get those wonderful aromas, you know, sometimes it smells like toast or it smells like brown spices or it smells like a croissant or roasted nuts. All of that great complexity on the nose comes from this aging on the lees. So in champagne, they do this aging for you. And so you get this wonderful, complex aroma and flavor and texture uh, because of the aging. And they don't do that in other parts of the world with their sparkling wines. So pretty amazing stuff. This is a question for Megan, because I I, I didn't have this depth about champagne Mm -hmm. coming into the show because you're educating me. You know, the questions I'm asking are hopefully informing everybody about you know how accessible how easy champagne really is Good. but you know you you talk about non-vintages mm-hmm. and you you have five maisons you know five yes. houses underneath what hennessy yes it's pretty amazing very lucky <laughs> how, how do the you know how do they make things distinctly different well i think each has a very different and distinct point of view so you're, you're talking about the five maisons that are part of lvmh which is louis vuitton moet hennessy so you know our sister brands are like sephora and celine and fendi but the five champagne maison or the wineries are moet de chandon right so hard tea it's not moet chambon sorry justin timberlake but <laughs> moet de chandon um Veuve so those are the two sort of bigger estates um, Rienard, uh, which was the first founded of all of the champagne houses, the first one to ever focus on this crazy thing, champagne with bubbles. Um, and then Krug and Dom Perignon. And so you hear these names and you've probably seen 
uh, one or two or maybe all of them on a shelf or at a friend's house or in a restaurant or on a wine list. And the fun thing is, is they're completely different. All, all five of them do things quite differently. You know, one or two of them might have something in common in terms of their winemaking philosophy or what they're trying to do, but they're completely different. So what I love about it is, you know, I love shoes. Um, <laughs> I love shoes. I'm obsessed for those that, that don't know. But with these five champagnes, you can really never be bored because you have kind of a complete wardrobe and something for every mood and something for every moment. You know, Moet de Chandon, which is one of the champagnes I brought. I brought a few for those out there. You can't see all the this bottles. This is the best show I've done in a while. <laughs> there will be some consumption on this lovely day. Um, you know, for me, Moet de Chandon is kind of a great one for sort of every day. Uh, you know, it's like every moment. You know, it's not too crazy expensive. You can find it in just about every market really in the world. They they say that one bottle of Moet de Chandon is opened every second somewhere in the world. So, you know, there's a decent amount of it out there. So no worries about shortages or all that crazy stuff they tried to scare us with at the turn of the century. <laughs> Millennium shortages and that kind of thing. But it's just a great one. It's so well made. You know, they use all three great varietals, not all of our Maison do uh, and they're wonderfully balanced and sort of fit every mood and occasion which is great if you're celebrating and you're kind of throwing down and you want to just be crazy you know maybe you drink Dom Perignon or Krug right so Dom Perignon only uses Chardonnay and Pinot Noir it's almost all from Grand Cru vineyards you know the best of the best uh, always aged always vintage and obviously you know in the higher side of the price spectrum as with Krug so you know we have that and, and everything in between which I think makes it a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm a sucker for pink wine as well. Oh, and we I, love it. I was lucky enough to go to Vuvco. Yes. And um, they put you in the little parlor afterwards. And I, I think they opened up a bottle of 96, oh. the Grand Dame, the, oh. that rosé. And it's yeah. just, it's stunning. At the same time, it's an everyday drink to me. I don't know yeah. if I'm the great. I really wanted to have this show because I love bubbles so much. Yes. But they're not just a special occasion thing. It's not. I mean, when you ask a sommelier, which, which you've been in many restaurants, mm-hmm. you know, to pair a plate of food, do you instantly go to champagne? I mean, it seems it's a no-brainer. so easy. Yeah, it's, it, it's a no-brainer. You know, Obviously, for celebrations, it's the perfect thing. You know, it feels very festive. It's something very different. But I think what people don't realize is, as we said, these are these are grapes that are used all the time all over the world. So, you know, if you would have this plate of food with a glass of Chardonnay, then champagne is a perfect stand-in, if not something that, that's going to elevate it and make it even more wonderful. If you're going to have that great sort of piece of grilled salmon and you would normally open a bottle of Pinot Noir, you know, try it with Veuve Clicquot. You know, La Grande Dame is the moniker for the widow Clicquot. Veuve means widow in French. She was a great woman who took over her husband's estate after he passed. She was 27 years old. So let's talk about a total badass woman in business. Forget about leaning in. This was 1805, <laughs> you know, when there weren't great women in business and, and she took over this business. And she was obsessed with Pinot Noir. So I got to love yeah. her, right? Oh, I thought you were going to say, and she was kind of ugly. Uh, well, well, <laughs> I mean, to me, she was beautiful yeah. because she made this beautiful wine. But she was really obsessed with Pinot Noir. And, and every bottle of a Flicot is at least 50% Pinot Noir. This is their obsession. This is their thing. This is what they're really great at. So, you know, if you're a big Pinot Noir fan, you know, maybe Moet's not your thing. Moet de Chandon. Maybe Veuve Clicquot is really your style. So, you know, within these five maisons, I think it's also really fun to find sort of which one is, is your yours. You know, which one do you really love? Which one is your style? Which one? fits your life and, and all this kind of thing. So it's it's pretty amazing Pinot Noir. She she had the vision to buy these Pinot Noir vineyards in my favorite name of a town in all of Windham in Boozy, 
right? So yeah. you're like you hang out in Boozy, you drink a little Pinot Noir, you stumble down the street to Dizzy, <laughs> which is another <laughs> name of a town in, in Champagne where there are Grand Cru vineyards. So, um, you know, and the story is really layered and I think really wonderful. I mean, the history of Champagne uh, is, is an absurdly long tale. And yeah. there's, what, over 100 houses now. Centuries and hundreds of houses and, yeah. and hundreds of growers as well. So, you know, there, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on there. It's funny, my parents, when I got into the wine business, this is years ago, used to say, oh, you know, so maybe we, we allow you to build your expertise. And then when we're ready to retire, we go and buy a vineyard and you can be the winemaker. And that sounded all really fine and good when I was first learning about wine. And then I took this job with um, Moet Hennessy and my parents said, oh, so maybe we go to Champagne, we change this plan. I'm like, uh, uh-uh, we're not going to Champagne, because this is a really difficult place to grow grapes. It, it's a really unforgiving terroir. So it's sort of amazing to me that people would devote their lives to this particular style of wine because, you know, it rains all the time. It's very cold, you know, as compared to a a wonderful place where it's warm and sunny all the time. This is a difficult place uh, to be. So these people, these small growers that are that are all over the region are are really dedicated people and they do it for love and they do it um, to bring us these beautiful things to pour into our glasses. And and do you feel like those kind of regions? I've been to Mount Etna in Sicily. And, you know, gorgeous. the, these extreme environments create, you know, extreme character. Yeah, right. We're we're better, you and I, because we've suffered in life. Oh yeah. You know? <laughs> no, so, so I've been talking about how much champagne I drink, so I've certainly right. suffered life in life. Tough for you. <laughs> A lot. Well, you know, it, it it follows. I mean, all over the wine world, they always say this: if the vines have to suffer, if they have to dig very deep in order to get water, if they um, have trouble getting nutrients, you're going to get grapes that are much more characterful and you know some of the best wines. If it's too easy for the grapes, you know, we're talking about you know growing on the flat or in soils that have lots of nutrients and where water is very readily available. You know, the wines are fine, but they're definitely not the great, the great wines of the world. So it's absolutely true. And Champagne is one of those places where it's really difficult. It's it's chalk soils. You know, the soils are almost all white. It's 75% chalk and limestone. Uh, so the, the roots of these grapevines really have to dig deep in order to get water. So, I mean, with, with all this complexity, um, th- this is a follow-up to Megan's initial question. <laughs> you know, you're dealing with these non-vintages, but yeah. they have to stay consistent. And obviously, each year isn't consistent. Right. How much of an art is that, you know, re-blending those wines so you have the same Dom, same Veuve, you know, every year for those people that go back to these special bottles? It's kind of amazing. Um, having now spent quite a bit of time with these Chef de Cave, you know, that's the name for the head winemaker at a Champagne Maison, I'm I'm even more odd than I ever was by what they do. If you think about it, if you're a winemaker, you know, in Oregon, for instance, you make Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris, and, and maybe you make 10 different wines every single year. These guys in Champagne, like Benoit Guez, for instance, who's the chef de cave at Moet de Chandon, he is responsible for making 800 individual wines every single year. So he's making hundreds of Chardonnays from different vineyards and different communes and towns and hundreds of different Pinot Noirs and hundreds of different Pinot Meuniers in order to have the raw materials that he needs to make champagne. I think part of the magic with champagne is unlike with a a normal wine, a still wine, which goes through one fermentation, champagne goes through two. The second fermentation is the one that produces the bubbles. So I majored in biochemistry when I was in school. Thanks, mom and dad. (laughs) This is the only time I get to use it. But I do get to use it. So, yeah. Anyway, um, so, it's, so it's kind of amazing. So 800 wines every single year just to, to have sort of the ingredients, just like a chef needs beautiful raw ingredients to make what goes onto the plate. 
these chef de cave and champagne have to make amazing numbers of, of wines to be prepared, to be able to blend, to make these champagnes consistent so that every bottle you take off the shelf of Rionar or of Dom Perignon is what you expect it to be. We're actually going to take a quick break and cool. come back and talk about that second fermentation, what puts the bubble in those bottles and get your safety goggles on. <laughs> You've been listening to The Food Prepare. Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. <laughs> This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, about to pop some corks with Belinda Chang. Thank God. I'm thirsty. Yeah, me too. <laughs> As she's undoing the foil. You know, we, let's talk a little bit more. <laughs> I like that. That's a, what are they called? B-grip foleys, the people that make the sound effects for movies. That's the foil coming off. <laughs> I want to talk a little more about that process because you touched about second fermentation. Um, yeah. I... I myself am the vinegar maker, and my second fermentation is acetic. So I, <laughs> ah. I know, I know how hard it is to actually not do that. And you know, romage, dosage, the, these Frenchy terms, which I was sexy called. French yeah. words. We love them. Everything what, sounds cuter that way. What What do you have to do? Uh, for champagne that you don't do f- normally for other wines. So it's an amazing process. As I said, so let's say you're a winemaker in Oregon and you do this first alcoholic fermentation. You know, you take a bunch of grapes. They have a lot of sugar in them. You throw in some yeast and then the yeast turns the sugar into alcohol and CO2. And in this case, the CO2 is just evaporating into the air. So that's what you do if you're making a normal still wine. So if you're at Vauflicot, for instance, you do that with 700 different wines. <laughs> so you've got a bunch of them and then you do it again. So for this second fermentation, you make your perfect blend. You know, you choose some of this beautiful Pinot Noir from the town of Bouzy, and you choose some really delicious Chardonnay from the town of Cremant. You blend it all together in an individual bottle. What's cool is the bottle that you have in your hand, this bottle of Flicot, went through all of this process. It's the same one that they blended in and they aged in. But you make your little blend, and then you add in yeast again. So this is a secondary fermentation. It's an alcoholic fermentation again, and the yeast goes to work on these wines. We add a little sugar, too, to help it out. So yeast has something to eat. And this time, all of it is happening in a bottle that is sealed. So now the CO2, the magic bubbles, the sparkle that we love so much, is trapped inside the bottle. So that's the magic. Poof. Now we have sparkling champagne um, in the bottle. And so, so that's the fermentation process. But much more has to happen. This all happens over the course of a couple weeks, a couple 
of months, um, but we're still not going to get that bottle to open and for you to saber and for us to pour <laughs> into the glass for more than a year. If it's a vintage champagne, we're not going to get it for more than three years, usually with our brands, five, seven, 20 years down the line before we have it in front of us. So much more is going to happen. So we're going to let that bottle sit, right? We'd mentioned the magic lees, those yeast cells are going to give all these great flavors. They're going to flavor the wine and change the texture of the wine and change the texture of the bubbles and add aromas and all this kind of fun stuff. And then at some point, we're going to want to take those out, right? Because none of us like a glass of champagne with, I like to call crunchies mm-hmm. in it, right? We all expect our champagne to be clear, right? You know, we love that clear bottle to see uh, that clear sparkling beverage in Inside. So, so the widow Clicquot, Veuve Clicquot, had this brilliant idea about how to get all the sediment, those dead yeast cells, out of these bottles of champagne. And that process is called riddling in English, but it has a cute name in French, remouage, where you have these guys, I don't know if you've ever seen this video, but they're down in these deep, dark cellars that are dug into the chalk and limestone, and they're turning the bottles. It looks kind of crazy. Yeah, they're, and how they don't have carpal tunnel syndrome. I know. I'm so concerned about yeah. the workman's comp here. <laughs> the, the statistic is there's three guys that do this at Moet des Chandon, they do it full-time, eight hours a day, maybe more, I don't know. I don't know how long the lunch break is in, in Champagne, but they can riddle 52,000 bottles in one day. So you're basically turning it an eighth of a way, an eighth of a way, giving it a little shake, and then pointing it down a little bit. And if you do this for four weeks, by the end of four weeks, all of that sediment, those dead yeast cells are down in the neck of the bottle. So remouage is complete, and then you're ready to disgorge and get that sediment out. And that also has a cute French name, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that's dégorgement. So um, that's when we kind of do a little dip of the bottle, the neck of the bottle, into a really cold salt solution and trap all of the dead yeast cells the sediment into a little ice cube that then just gets ejected from the bottle and voila, we have clear champagne and nothing crunchy being poured into your glass. And I mean, there are actually bottles that haven't been disgorged yet. So I, I think we have a Movia in the fridge yeah. right now that's been sitting there partially because we want to save it. That's right. <laughs> the other half is like, we're not 100% sure how to, you know, disgorge ourselves. Well, well, um, it's, it's the same process. So, you know, I know that with Movia, they suggest that you take a, a huge bowl and have ice inside and put the bottle in neck down so that you can get all the sediment sort of frozen into a little ice cube. So you can do your own little degorgement or disgorgement experiment on your own at home. So there's CO2 in the bottle at this point, right? Because we did fermentation in a sealed bottle and all the bubbles are trapped inside. So those bubbles inside will shoot out all of the sediment. Back in the day before Vauflico invented this process of, of riddling and, and remouage, you would decant champagne before you served it. So yeah. it was kind of a pain. And, that, and this is from the 1800s that, you know, th- this was invented and yeah. still holds true today. Still do it the exact same way. I mean, obviously now we have machines. You can have the guys do it by hand, the riddlers doing hand Hand riddling does still exist, but these days you can use a machine called a gyro palette. So it looks like a big, huge monster wine case, and all the bottles are being mechanically moved by computer, you know, yeah. uh, measuring all of the angles and doing it perfectly. And so now instead of three to four weeks, it takes only three to four days wow. to get all the sediment sort of trapped in, in one spot so that it's ready to be ejected. I mean, there's a lot of, there's like over 25 million bottles of champagne, I think, annually, right? So many. Over 30 now over at this 30. point. Yeah. Those yeah. Belgians. I 
know. They're drinking it all. Yeah. I mean, so there's so much out there. And, you know, from, from Duda, Extra Brute, you know, there are many different types and styles. Yes, yes. So what do we have in front of us today? So everything I brought today, um, this pile of bottles here, is Brute level. So what happens after this disgorgement, so you shoot out this little ice cube with all the sediment trapped inside, you have some space left in the bottle. So this is one of the last steps of producing champagne. This is when we fill it up. So this is a step called um, dosage. And you can choose to put a little dosage, which is usually a, a mixture of wine and sugar. You could do no sugar and make uh, what we call a brute zero. So that's usually a pretty dry style of champagne. Some people really love it. I call it S&M um, champagne. <laughs> um, and I'm not the only one who feels this way about it because the other nickname for brute zero is brute sauvage. So it kind of savages your mouth just a little bit, can take a little bit of enamel off. So use Sensodyne before drinking it. But <laughs> that's one version where you add a dosage with no sugar. You can also put, you know, zero to 12 grams per liter sugar um, in your dosage into the bottle, and then you have a brute. So that's the standard. I think over 90% of all the champagne that's produced is this brute level. So they're adding, you know, 12 grams per liter sugar or less. Uh, but this is what we all see out there. So if you have a bottle of Moet de Chandon Imperial, you know, that's nine grams per liter. It's a brute style. If you're having Vauflicot Yellow Label or Renard Blonde Blanc, those are all brute style champagnes that we're all familiar with and, and is the majority of what we drink. Um, it's interesting, though, back in the day, if you if you happen to find a 200-year-old uh, bottle of champagne, back in the day, the Russians sort of were dominating the style because they drank the most. I would have loved to have been a Russian. But they were drinking champagnes that were 200 grams per liter plus Ooh, yeah. sugar. So to put that in perspective, a Coca-Cola, like a regular Coca-Cola, not a Mexican Coca-Cola, is 100. Um, so they were drinking champagnes that were double as sweet as a, as a regular Coke. And that was the style back in the day. But obviously, we have much more modern palettes, and we prefer kind of drier styles these days. I mean, how has champagne evolved? You see Blanc de Noirs, Blanc de Blancs, you know, even yeah. rosé champagnes. Now, are there new styles being explored? I think this this really dry style is definitely something that is new, um, which is a very sort of modern thing. Uh, you know, my parents had some bottles of champagne in addition to that bottle of Lancers. They never opened them, but I do find them every once in a while when I'm digging around in, in the basement. And I found a bottle of Moët de Chandon White Star, right? So if people are a little older, maybe they've seen that out there in the market. And that used to be the, the best-selling champagne here in the U.S. And, and it was a sweeter style. It was like 22 grams per liter. So that was kind of what, what people really loved back then. But now with Moet et Chandon in particular, we're now drinking what everybody else in the world drinks, which is this nine grams per liter, this drier style. So I think these drier styles are definitely kind of what's trendy in Champagne. And, and also focusing on, on grapes like Pinot Meunier or focusing on these grapes that we talked about before that you can freak out your friends with, Arban and Petit Melier, and, and doing kind of new and different things with the, the old Champagne techniques. Obviously, it's still the same method and still subject to all these crazy laws, but but there is room for creativity, which I think is really great. And in 1973, Domaine Chandon opened up in the U.S. That's because right. Napa. it wasn't just all about France, and mm-hmm. you know developed the idea of the Champenois method. Yep. Uh, how has this informed other sparkling wines around the world? I think it's been really great. I mean, obviously in Champagne, they've had tons of practice, right? We're talking about centuries and centuries to sort of figure out what to do with these grapes and how to make the best sparkling wine. So um, it's been interesting to see, you know, laws, for instance, in a place called Cava, right, in in Spain have been changing over time as well. And and you see them starting to adapt some of the laws that they have in Champagne. For instance, we talked about these aging minimum requirements, right? So in Cava now, they have aging minimum requirements 
that's where the wine does have to spend time on the lees. So that gives us a more complex wine, something with more aromas, with better texture. Um, so I think it's really great. I think some other regions in the world are sort of upping their sparkling wine production game, if you will. They do have to be careful, though, because by law, you cannot put champagne on a label unless the actual wine was made in this region in the northeast of France, 45 minutes northeast of Paris. Um, they do have armies and armies of lawyers that will come get you. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to beware. I don't feel like I'm that intimidated by a champagne lawyer. You're not scared? No, no, no. <laughs> they just come with droves of champagne in their trunks and in their suitcases. Right. Don't... Champagne mafia might yeah. not be as scary no, as we no. think. <laughs> I'd, I'd almost want to start a product that had champagne on the label and just see what happens. See what happens. happens. <laughs> yeah, come get me, you champagneers. <laughs> don't be scared. <laughs> we're we're going to go into etiquette. Um, Great. And, and after etiquette, we're going to go into, I don't know if you consider sabering part of etiquette. Um. Well, we do not endorse the action of sabering yeah. itself. <laughs> However, <laughs> there's there's great historical sort of precedent for it and and personally i think it's a lot of fun <laughs> i mean in the 60s i think it was moet uh chandon started giving the grand prix racers a bottle to yes. celebrate with at the you know at their victory lap the champagne shower is that what you're referring yeah. to michael <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean there's so many great rituals right so you know there's a hotel in kentucky that every year does this amazing sort of floor-to-ceiling tower of champagne glasses so if you've ever seen a champagne fountain i think the tallest i've ever managed is about five feet but i think they do one that's over 12 feet maybe even taller than that and they start building it weeks in advance so that someone can stand on this this ladder and take a huge bottle of champagne and start pouring and it all fountains down to the bottom glasses a bit is wasted but it's still sort of an amazing spectacle so there's the fountain there's the shower which is is that great celebration there's christening boats with bottles of champagne and breaking them on the bow you know it, it's such a quintessential part of so many celebrations and so many moments in life which i think is a lot of fun well let's celebrate this one because this is partially just because you're here yay it's a moment that, that we get moment. to have champagne in the afternoon but um <laughs> i'm also coming on four years of the food scene oh my gosh um, congratulations thank you. and as a station five years of heritage radio network so love it we, we we all have to toast each other you know 35 plus shows we've just grown in such a wonderful and sustainable way that yes. we only hope to be here and and you know pop some corks we must five ten twenty years from now <laughs> but let's get to that you know the etiquette from you know presenting opening pouring and yeah. then the the disclaimer savoring <laughs> sounds good so every bottle of champagne has a little foil capsule if you will and there's usually a little tab that you can use to remove it so that's going to be the first step um, second step is every bottle of champagne has some kind of wire cage, we call it. So those are those sort of wires that are holding the cork down because there are about six atmospheres of pressure in a bottle of champagne. This is where pain and injury can happen. So <laughs> beware. So each of these wire cages has a little tab. So you pull that down and then you turn it towards you. And here's what's amazing. I've probably opened millions of bottles of champagne in my many years of drinking champagne. And it's always the exact same number of turns. Yeah. Six. Six so turns. one, two, three, four, five, six. So from now on, you want to make sure to be applying pressure to the top of this bottle. Um, don't wave around. you got to focus. This is the moment where you try not to hurt your friends and try not to point this cork towards anyone you don't want to hurt. 
But if you do want to hurt, another <laughs> if you disclaimer. Hurt, you know, feel free. You know, point the point the bottle at, at whomever has angered you. Uh, and now you want to give the cork a little turn. So I'm holding the cork with one hand and then turning the bottle with the other and applying pressure. So this is a, a precision movement. And but then, you're, you're not twisting the cork. You're no, twisting, twisting the bottle. the bottle itself. So if you want to, you know, get your master sommelier, you want you this sound. You are the best with sound effects. You want just a little whisper. So that's the whisper. If you want to be really celebratory, let her rip, and you can have the big pop, and we can do that version, too. And then, voila, it is ready to be consumed. <laughs> are we going to consume it, Michael? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I thought that was went without saying. So I think that we're going to do another version of opening here. We are. Version 2.0. So yeah. I'm going to can the bottle over to you and let you do the honors. So the foil's already been removed on this one. We're just going to remove that. We can take off the cage for savoring yeah. if you want, uh, or you can leave it on. That takes a little bit more skill. And then what you want to look for on the side of the bottle is just about every bottle, 99% of them, have a seam down the side of the bottle. So you're looking for six, that seam. Six twists, it was right. six yeah, confirmed? Absolutely. Thank God. So, so then I take the cage off. So you're gonna, you can or just loosen the cage. Don't take it off. Yeah. I like uh, there are other people in the studio right now. They're and starting they're all, to duck. Yeah, they're all getting ready. <laughs> this is where it gets a little dangerous. Okay, so you're good. Yeah. You can leave it on. So you want to find the seam on the side of the bottle. So every bottle has one. It's sort of a place where the bottle has the least structural integrity. Did we find it yet? I believe so. Okay, so the seam, you want to have it on top of yep. the bottle, right? And you're going to hold the bottle at 45 degrees. This is really important. If you do it lower, mm -hmm. it's not going to be cute. You're right-handed, are you, Michael? I'm Ambi, but I'm going to go right. So I just handed the Lyle Saber, <laughs> which is the, the saber of choice for those who are doing ceremonial sabrage. And then I do it kind of like a pool cue. You know how when you're playing pool, you sort of go one, two, three, and should, then you should shoot? Should I tell you how good I, at pool I am? I'm terrible at pool. I don't pool. know if I want to know. <laughs> do I want to know? <laughs> so you just kind of run the saber, the blunt side right? Blunt side. Along that seam mm -hmm. and give it a one, two, and then on three, whack it. And you want to follow through like a golf swing, right? And just do it with conviction. And if all goes well, we'll have a big sound and champagne all over the studio. How do you feel about it? Good. I'm not, I'm not even thinking it's just going to happen. All right. Cool. I'm down. One, two. I've never seen, seen a se seated oh. sabrage though. Well, I just took the foil off on that one and in the cage. 45 degrees. <laughs> One, two. Oh, and I will say that I've done this with your wife, and she was a pretty rock star. It's not easy. Mm. Maybe hold it a little lower with your other hand, like like that. Hold the bottle here. Hold like the this. bottle here. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> Forty-five degrees, a little lower, maybe. And is the seam right on top? I believe in so. In the center? See, this is why I let my wife do okay. this. Okay, yeah. Maybe standing. What do you think? I'm going to stand up. Okay. <laughs> He's standing, and I feel... You know what else is have this sort of flat? Like, you want it to whack there. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Oh. It's not easy. It takes no, a little no, bit no. of practice. Yo, oh, oh, yes! Oh. <laughs> Blew off the bottle on that one. That was amazing. I don't know if Radioland yeah, could hear that, but... <laughs> It's okay. Champagne burns clean. I'm sure all the equipment's going to be fine. <laughs> Are you okay? I'm absolutely okay. I realize that we I didn't... Think you we shut didn't... down the, st the station itself, though. <laughs> we didn't put you in safety <laughs> equipment. I did bring gloves that are cut-proof, and I did bring safety goggles as well. <laughs> well, do you do this at home? Maybe have Belinda teach you how to do it, or do it in the backyard, not over radio equipment. But drink as much champagne as you can. It'll make you happy. It'll make life better. I'm ecstatic right now. <laughs> I'm so happy that, I mean, I blew up that bottle, but at least... It's open. 
It's open and well we done. get to drink. Thank you so much, Belinda Chang. My pleasure. Moet Hennessy, Champagnes of the World. <laughs> You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.